0: Each year, since 1955, Fortune has released the Fortune 500. It's a list of the country's biggest companies ranked by revenue. In the beginning, the list was dominated by manufacturers, by car companies, by oil giants. But slowly that's begun to change. Technology companies now hold three of the list's top 10 spots. Total revenue for the tech sector is at its highest level since 1995 and the sector brings in more profits than any other. The growth of technology companies on the Fortune 500. That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Ivram.
1: And I'm Brian O'Keefe.
0: So, Brian, you have worked on many a Fortune 500 issue in your day. uh, And I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of context on the origins and on what goes into actually producing this issue every year.
1: Yes, I have had the honor and the privilege of working on many, many editions of the Fortune 500 in my time at Fortune. And, you know, I think the history behind it is kind of neat. As you said, we started publishing it back in the mid-50s. And it really started as an internal tool, because the editors of Fortune back at the time said, hey, we need to have a list of all the big companies in the United States, because you know this kind of information was not easily available at your fingertips. So they compiled a big list of these companies, 500 companies. And they were mostly industrial companies, because that's what the economy was like. And some editors said, hey, we should publish that for our readers, they might be interested. So they did. And people immediately seized on it, and they were interested in this list and this ranking and started using the phrase Fortune 500 and it became a big deal. And it's really become kind of the ultimate scorecard for success in big business, being a Fortune 500 company.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. It's just provided this annual snapshot of where business is going and, and where it currently is. And, you know, I sometimes tell people I work for Fortune and they're like, oh, like the Fortune 500. So it's become this bigger brand even than Fortune itself, which is fascinating. But one of the things that we've seen really move over the last few years is technology. So what do we need to know as we head into this podcast episode today on the role that the tech sector is playing specifically?
1: It's a tech, tech, tech world. That's probably the biggest headline. Everybody knows that over the past year, through COVID-19, through lockdowns, that our worlds became much more digital. That's how we were interacting with each other and interacting with businesses and companies that were built on tech or leading with tech benefited hugely. But it's been a trend that's been developing for a while. I mean, if you just look at some of the stats, like on this year's 500, right? amazon.com is number 2. They've made a huge huge move over the years. Apple's number 4. They've earned more than 50 billion dollars in profit for 3 straight years. But you also look at like Facebook for instance. Facebook first made the list in 2013. They were number 482. This year they're number 34. You know, it's a similar thing with Tesla. Didn't make the list until 2017. They were number 383. This year they're number 100, they're in the top 100 for the first time. So it's not just that these tech companies are making the list, they are growing by leaps and bounds. And these are the companies that are kind of dominating the conversation out there. And they're dominating the Fortune 500 too. Yeah. But you don't just have to listen to me give numbers about the Fortune 500 because we decided to go to the expert. So today we are going to do something really fun. And we're going to talk to Fortune's list editor, Scott DiCarlo. And Scott is, Michal, as we know, the solver of all problems, the maestro of all data, and just generally like the go-to person at Fortune for all information. So let's get into it with Scott.
2: Well, the big thing uh, for this year's 500 and it's on everybody's mind and has been for too long is the pandemic and its effect on business. We've seen the most companies that checked in with losses in their fiscal year since the recession, which was 108 companies. And I believe they lost well over yeah. $200 billion in losses. But what we have seen and have seen during the pandemic is the, the continuing rise of technology, right? But it's come to the point where technology for profits this year overtook the financials sector, which I think is a big more. And the technology sector actually made up over 30% of the overall profits. Uh, the Fortune 500.
1: Yeah it's interesting to see that the share of revenue for tech is growing but smaller than the share of profit and then the share of market cap of tech overall is huge, which reflects the belief out in the world that tech companies are leading the way, that the whole economy is being led by tech.
0: Are there any new tech companies that are worth noting that are just kind of on the fringe? Are we talking about the usual suspects? Is it the, the Amazons and Apples and Googles and these kind of companies? Or are we actually seeing new tech entrants to the Fortune 500?
2: I think we were seeing more of technology being introduced by creeping into other industries where they make up a part of the business, but they're not essentially a tech company. Like I wouldn't define a Classification wise, as a tech company, but they are very much a tech company. And that's like really, I think, driving revenue and profits of, of all the companies that are on the list that are growing.
1: So I think we should take a step back real quick and just remind people how companies make the Fortune 500. Like, what is the main criterion to be on the list and what's the cutoff? Because, you know, especially when we talk about young tech companies. The Fortune 500 is is a company of a certain size, so you can have like a really impactful company that's growing fast. It doesn't quite make it onto the Fortune 500. So, just remind everybody, Scott, like what the parameters are.
0: I thought it was just a list that uh, you know it's companies that Scott likes, and he just puts those into the 500 every year.
2: He that's tries to do it, it that works. way. <laughs> we did have a company this year. I will just mention that was founded in my hometown of Yonkers. That was a, a returnee. Otis Worldwide was a returnee to the 500. It was an original Fortune 500 company.
1: And by the way, an original tech company because they made the elevators amazing technology that took people up above the first floor without walking. That, w- that was cutting-edge tech
2: back in the day. Go Yonkers. Go Yonkers, exactly. So uh, the biggest thing that dictates the list is the revenue threshold. It is a company of the, it's the biggest companies in the U.S. by revenue, which some people don't know. And this year's cutoff for the 500 company was, in fact, it was Moody's and it was $5.4 billion.
1: So Scott, just to drill down on tech again for a moment, how do the overall sales or revenue of tech compare to other sectors? And then how do the profits in tech compare to other sectors like financials and healthcare, some of these other big segments of the Fortune 500 and the economy?
2: Well, the... Technology sector ranked fourth this year. Financials was number one, and then it was healthcare, retailing, and then it was technology. And behind technology this year was energy, which uh, had a huge drop in revenue of 27%.
1: So we're talking about revenue here. This I'm is, talking about revenues.
2: Yep. Sorry, yep. yes. So they ranked number four overall. But where they did rank number one was in profits at 275 billion to uh, financials, which was second to 251. And how many
1: companies are in each? How many companies made the 500 from tech versus financials, for instance?
2: Right. So in tech, there are half the amount of companies that are in the financial sector. Financial sector, there are 94. That's a great point. And in technology, there are 47. So more
1: profits on half as many companies. Yeah.
2: Correct. Almost as much revenue and their market value is double. Than what the financial firms are worth. They're also the third leading employer of the sectors. Wow.
0: It says so much. It's like you said, Scott, the list is such an indicator of just where business is going and has gone over the years. And the fact that technology represents so much of the profits and, you know, third leading employer really says a lot.
1: Okay, I got one more question for you, Scott.
0: His favorite 10K that he's ever read. <laughs>
1: The most explosive 10K you ever read.
2: My favorite annual report ever to read was Marvell Comics.
0: He actually has one. This is amazing.
2: (laughs) It was a comic book. Like it was an annual report as a comic book, which I kept for years. I kept three of them. That one, and I'll tell you another one, was McCormick's, the food production company, because every year they had a different scratched the cover, and it smelled like a different spice. Wow.
0: Ooh. I hope they did a pizza that season. That sounds like the one. best. All right, Brian. Sorry, what was your real question, Brian? Uh, I
1: don't know. It's <laughs> It doesn't even compare to that. But I was going to ask you, so, so Walmart has been number one for several years now, the giant, giant gargantuan retailer. They have more than half a trillion dollars in sales. But there's a, a new giant digital retailer, which is Amazon, and they've made huge... Huge gains on the list over several years. They're now number two. Do you think Amazon will catch Walmart at some point? And if so, when? What's the over under on how many years until they could?
2: Well, so Walmart's probably been growing over the past 10 years. I'm going to say like a 5 to 6% clip revenue growth. And Amazon has been growing 25 to 30% each year, which is really crazy. And I want to say if they continue to grow at the clip they're growing, it's going to be like a year or two. not next year, but it could be two years where they're going to replace Walmart as the biggest. And that will be the best news that we can like blast for the Fortune 500.
1: That would be a historic day for sure.
0: So as Scott said, it's not always easy or obvious how to classify companies on the Fortune 500 list. And we're now going to hear from one of those companies. It's landed on the Fortune 500 for the first time this year. Carvana is an online platform for buying and selling used cars. Fortune classifies it as a retailer, at least for now, not a tech company. But consumer adoption of technology during the pandemic clearly has helped fuel the company's rise onto this year's list. And here's the company's CEO, Ernie Garcia.
3: So our business model is what we call full stack. So it means we're doing all the things necessary to give a customer a great experience when they buy a car from us. So we're buying cars directly from customers. We actually buy more cars today from customers than we sell to customers. We also buy cars off lease. So we have really broad access to cars. We then have 12 reconditioning centers around the country where we take those cars, we put about a thousand dollars of parts and labor into them uh, to certify them to our Carvana certified standards. We then photograph them and put them on our website. Today, customers can go to our website. There's tens of thousands of cars for them to pick from. Those cars can be delivered as soon as the next day. They can go through the entire transaction on the website, so they can get approved for and select financing. They can get a warranty if they would like. They can get a value for their trade-in. They can sign contracts and then schedule that delivery or pickup. And then when they get the car, they get a seven-day return policy. And we're currently in just shy of 300 markets around the country, serving about 80% of the U.S. population with direct delivery to them. And then for the other 20% of the U.S. population, we'll deliver using third-party services, and they still get that seven-day return policy.
0: Okay. And everybody's favorite question, how has the pandemic impacted your business? I
3: think part of what the pandemic did, and I think this is true for Carvana, but it's true across all businesses is it created this moment in time where behaviors changed. They were kind of forced to change. You had to consider new alternatives. So whether it was ordering your groceries online or having food delivered more often or whatever it was, behaviors change. And so it created this moment in time where I think all of a sudden people tried things they might not have otherwise tried. That hurdle of fear of change was kind of lowered because change was required. And so people tried new things. And as a result of trying new things, I think demand has shifted in the economy in a way that just accelerated change that likely would have happened anyway because it was kind of rational change, but it would have taken a while for people to make those choices and adjust in the ways they have. And so I think it's driven a lot more demand to us. Now on the supply side, there's all kinds of interesting things occurring right now. You know, many auto manufacturers have these really complicated global supply chains, and across the globe, there are different ways that kind of COVID is playing out. And so these supply chains that rely on many, many different locales are disrupted to varying degrees. And so you're seeing far less production of new cars than we historically have seen, which means that there's less supply than you would like to have given all the demand. And so you're seeing car prices move up and you're seeing all kinds of interesting things. So for us, in the first quarter, we grew revenues by over 100%, growing really quickly because of these shifts in demand. We're now working really, really hard on Carvana-specific problems to just figure out how can we open more reconditioning centers faster? How can we recondition more cars? How can we buy more cars? How can we make the entire system bigger, faster, so that we can satisfy all this demand that we're seeing? And so that's a huge place that we're focusing today.
0: Do you consider yourselves a technology company or a technology-enabled company?
3: You know, I I think those questions are so interesting and it oftentimes depends on the context in which it's asked. Most companies, if they're thinking about how they want to be valued, will call themselves a technology company, right? Um, But I think the way that we think about ourselves is we're a company that's trying to deliver the best customer experiences that we can. So there's a lot of technology that goes into enabling this very complex transaction of buying a car. But there's also a lot of operations that go into buying a car from customers and going and picking that car up and taking it to you know these reconditioning centers and putting $1,000 of parts and labor at every one and then shipping these cars across the country as soon as next day. That's an entire physical supply chain that we've had to build. And so I think we undoubtedly have operational components of the business and we have technology components of the business, but all of that is in service of giving customers the best experience we possibly can. And, and that's how we make our decisions.
0: And Especially with technology companies or companies that can consider themselves tech companies, we've seen this kind of push and pull of when do you prioritize revenue growth over profit? At which point do you kind of shift into prioritizing profit? Where is that sweet spot for you guys? So I think
3: the most important part of that question, there there may be two really big inputs to that question, at least the way that we think about it one is how big is the opportunity the bigger the opportunity relative to where you currently are the more justification that you have for additional investment in the form of growth right so you have to look at how big the opportunity is number two is you have to look at what are your unit economics and how confident are you that the business model works on the opportunity side last quarter we were the second largest seller of used cars in the country after just eight years but our market share was less than one percent so 40 million people buy and sell used cars every single year, so the opportunity is absolutely massive. Then if you go and you say, what are the unit economics? We've made a lot of investments over time to try to ensure that we're doing as much of the work as we possibly can for our customers, which one, enables great customer experiences and is driving our growth, but two, it gives us the opportunity to kind of make more of the money that is inherent in a, a car buying transaction. Oftentimes there are many, many middle people in between a transaction that are making money, whether it's finance companies or you know auction houses or whatever it is. So we've really focused on trying to invest in building all that out ourselves. So it's driven you know, year over year leverage. Every single year, we've decreased our losses as a percentage of revenue pretty dramatically. So we've been able to continue to invest in growth and, and maintain those really high rates of growth, but we also have not crossed over that kind of you know, precipice where all of a sudden now the sum of that growth and in those investments plus the variable economics you get drives you know, underlying profitability. That would be the natural result of that progress.
1: So Michal, as we have discussed already in this episode, there are tech companies making huge jumps in the rankings of the Fortune 500, and the tech sector overall is making a bigger and bigger impression in the 500. But one of those tech companies that made a huge move this year is Salesforce, which jumped from 190 in the rankings last year to 137 this year and had more than $21 billion in revenue last year. And of course, you know Salesforce very well, which is a customer relationship management software company, because you have just written a big feature in the print issue of the magazine about Salesforce and its dynamic founder and CEO, Mark Benioff. And you spent a lot of time with Mark, right?
0: Yeah, I spoke with Benioff several times over the course of reporting this story, and the thing about him is that you never really know where he's going to be or what he's going to say. He kind of keeps you on your toes. And when I asked him if we could talk to him also and just have him answer a few quick questions for us for this podcast, he said yes, but he did it while he was on the road. So just a word of warning here, his audio quality was not that great
1: but he did give the answer that every journalist yearns to hear when they're sitting down for an interview.
0: What's ideal for you, just so we stay on track here? Five or six hours. (laughs) Okay, perfect.
1: Michal, one of the things that I found most interesting was when we asked Mark, uh, what were the big trends in technology that he thought were going to drive startups and that companies could take advantage of now and going forward? One, you need to look
4: for new technology models you know, we benefited that software wasn't going to be on a CD anymore. It was going to be a service. Two, uh, we benefited that the business model changed, that it wasn't just going to be an acquisition of a license, but it was going to be a subscription. And we benefited from the idea that companies were ready to be companies with a new set of values. And those three ideas were so important. And I think when you look at that, And when I look at all the opportunities for new industries today, well, I'll give you a great example, which is sustainability. I think that it's the same uh, concept that happened in cloud computing 20 years ago is happening in sustainability today. That you have new technology models, new business models, and you have new values where companies want to go net zero. And where there's tremendous new opportunity in the sustainability is really one of the great new pioneering opportunities.
1: So Michal, I thought that was really interesting that Mark focused on sustainability. And I know that's a passion of his, but, you know, in sort of classic off fashion, he was also seeing the business opportunities there. And I think he's right. There's a lot happening in technology and a huge, huge need.
0: Yeah, he's fascinating. He's got all these text threads with all sorts of people from different walks of life. And one thing I learned about him is that he's gotten pretty tight with Jane Goodall, who, um, as you might know, is an anthropologist and primatologist and, you know, a a conservationist, among other things. And so he has really, really gotten passionate about protecting the environment and the oceans in particular.
4: I think we're about to witness the energizing of what I call an ecopreneur revolution. And that there is all kinds of exciting new entrepreneurs who are focused on the environment who are ecopreneurs. And these ecopreneurs are building amazing new technology that are really in kind of the five areas of climate change, which are reducing carbon emissions, sequestering existing carbon, providing education, Um, doing core innovation, and even helping in the regulation, you know, of uh, climate around the world.
1: One other topic that Benioff has been thinking about a lot and that we asked him about was employees going back to work, Salesforce is getting people back to work and trying to be very thoughtful about it. And Benioff said he thinks it's actually going to be a competitive advantage for companies that can figure out how to bring back people with flexibility in this post-pandemic we're emerging from the pandemic world that we hope we're in. And he also introduced kind of a surprising concept that I don't think we saw coming, right?
0: Yeah. So Salesforce has 60,000 employees across the globe and they've got this big, huge, tall Salesforce tower in the city of San Francisco where they're headquartered. But now it's all about the ranch. So Benioff talked about this new concept. I got a little hung up on the word ranch, but I don't think he has cattle in mind exactly.
4: Kind of a fun one that we've been kicking around is something we call the Salesforce Ranch or Trailblazer Ranch. And the idea that we would buy a big piece of land, like a huge piece of land, you know, thousands of acres. And you'd stay there, maybe you'd bring your family and you'd learn about our product, much in the way General Electric used to do in their Crotonville facility, you know, i am always reinforced by one of our core board members, Colin Powell, who always told me that you know you can recruit a soldier, but you have to retain the family. And so, opportunities like that to be able to entertain families, while also reinforcing culture, while also creating opportunities for product strategy—all of those things are important. Really, a lot of the large companies that are kind of industrial companies from the '60s and '70s and '80s—they have 80s these large facilities where you go as new hires. And you get trained and kind of technology put on a new bite and you know business moved more to the cities, those training facilities got devalued. And I think that they're gonna get rebirthed.
1: So what Benioff is talking about there is really kind of a retro idea in some ways. I mean, if you go back to the last century, well back into the last century, the nineteen sixties, you had these big industrial, powerful companies and the leading tech companies of their day. It would have these sort of corporate campuses and they bring workers in and train them, do career development. And Benioff's thinking about reimagining that for the 2020s, which I think is kind of an intriguing idea, but a little surprising too.
0: Yeah. And he also talked about another thing that I think is pretty retro, and that's how he uses technology himself.
4: I've removed email from my phone. I no longer do email on my phone. put that Once I get to my office and my office computer, I will do email.
0: When did you remove email from your phone? Has it been a while?
4: It was really during the pandemic where so much communication was coming at me, it became intolerable. I think that my overall communication has radically increased during the pandemic and I've had to fundamentally change how I communicate. And one of the things I did was just get email off of my phone.
1: It's a little ironic, Michal, that here we are talking about Mark Benioff, who's running one of the fastest-growing companies on the Fortune 500, and we're seeing technology take over the Fortune 500. And in fact, technology has taken over his brain space and his time, and he had to figure out ways to like wall off time and be more efficient and still be able to think about other things than his email, right?
0: Well, I'm right there with him, Brian. I only have time for podcasts these days, you know? That's it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world.
1: The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold.